to think of someone you loved, you know, in a shallow grave in some piece of wasteland. You know, it's it's not a. You know, I've covered so many disappeared cases, and it's the absence of a proper Christian burial place somewhere where people can go on a birthday or an anniversary and lay flowers or say a prayer or. You know, it's that not knowing, and I, I do think that, you know, it adds to people's trauma and grief. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. For decades, the troubles in Northern Ireland set the news agenda, engulfed the resources of crime fighting, and left thousands of families traumatised. But there were other murders too, many of which journalist Alison Morris believes didn't get the full attention of police because of the war that raged throughout the province and because some of the victims simply were not high profile enough. Today, I'm joined by Alison from the Belfast Telegraph, who tells me the stories of 24-year-old Lisa Dorian and others like her, whose cold cases she believes could now be solved. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Lisa Dorian disappeared from a caravan park in Ballyhalbert in 2005 and hasn't been seen since. This is obviously one of the most significant missing person cases in the north. Yeah, it would be. I mean, it would be probably one of the most high-profile at present time. I mean, we do have the disappeared who would be as a result of the Troubles, you know, those sort of very famous disappeared, the Jean McConville-type cases. But, yeah, in this in this um, respect, in the case of a, a woman who was basically murdered on a, on an evening out, yeah, it's one of the, the most high-profile. So what happened? Lisa was part of a, a very sort of loving family she had two sisters she came from like a really nice home they lived in Bangor really happy girl what what happened originally was that she had been with a, a long-term boyfriend and they had split up um her friendship group and his friendship group were basically the same so she had started hanging around with different people who wouldn't have been from her traditional friendship group and they were people who at that time and if you go back you know cash right back to 2005 it would have been a big time for sort of dance music that sort of rave culture um they were big into that and also into drugs and Lisa started hanging around with them um and she had been going with a guy from from within that sort of group and so she had been with different people who her family wouldn't have necessarily known um so she had traveled to this caravan park in Ballyhalbert she had been on um she had been with somebody in the caravan park and then her family were contacted by a friend who just said have you seen lisa i haven't been able to get a hold of her i don't know where she is and so they went looking for the person who she was with gave a statement saying that there was they heard noise outside the caravan bright lights and they ran out into the night and that was the last that he had seen of her. He was the last sort of witness, if you like, who let eyes on her. So originally it was a genuine missing person case where, where, you know, her family and search teams and friends went and searched what is... Ballyhalbert's a place, despite the fact there's caravan parks and it's a holiday place, in the summer it would be full of, you know, families 
who are down there for the weekend. Um, it would be a lot of people from North Down area would have caravans up around that part of the, the Ards Peninsula. But in the winter, it's it's a bleak, bleak, desolate place, as a lot of those seaside towns are. Um, and so the the they thought that maybe she'd wandered off. She wasn't wearing particularly warm clothes. They were worried that maybe she'd sort of succumbed to the cold. Um, but then as time went on and her, her body was never found, the police then had changed it and upgraded to a murder investigation and said they were the opinion that Lisa had been murdered and her body had been disposed of. There was a lot of sort of false rumours were put about, but at the time, claiming an involvement of people who were linked to various paramilitary groups. There was also a rumour put that they she'd been placed into a boat and took out to sea and her body disposed of at sea. None of these things, either the police or the family, believed to be accurate. They do believe that Lisa is remains are buried somewhere quite close to the caravan where she was last seen. The thing is, if you look at the sort of geography at that area, because of the bleakness of it, it's vast and they don't know where within that vast area that Lisa is. And so it's been a constant battle and a campaign for, for information. A little bit like a lot of the cases of missing women down here, the supposition is that they're murdered because they neither show up, obviously, use their banking cards or there's any trace of them whatsoever. Um, but that's a very specific last point uh, in a missing case, that caravan. Was that examined as a crime scene or treated as a crime scene? It, it was. And the, the thing is that um, the police examined that caravan. They're believed to have examined every inch of it. They couldn't find any DNA such as you would imagine that a crime scene. They didn't find blood. They didn't find any of those sort of things. They knew they had been in it. Um, and then this person had been out with her. So, you know, the they believe that what may have happened is she may have been strangled, which would obviously be there wouldn't be any blood in the caravan, and then she was taken somewhere else. So we know that there is one person who is the chief suspect for having killed Lisa, and then there is another person who is the suspect for having helped that person dispose of their body. The thing about it is it's a very small circle of people so in these type of cases you would maybe get if you had numerous people who were involved even if you have more than half you know half a dozen people the passage of time means that someone might come forward with information the smaller the group of people involved and the fact that they would both have played quite a major role in this means that they're almost reliant on each other to keep this secret and that's the the, the problems that the family have had over the years because Joanne Dorian, who's, who's Lisa's sister, she used to get a very sort of prominent role in trying to campaign and keep Lisa in the news and keep her in the headlines to try and keep pressure on someone to come forward. And she says, you know, the criminal part of this, the justice for her sister's murder, that's the police's job. But she feels the family need to be the ones who are leading the campaign to try and find her sister's remains. Lisa's mother, Pat, died, a very young woman. She was only in her 50s of what her family said was a broken heart. Lisa was her eldest daughter. Her remains were never returned. She was just completely heartbroken. And, you know, the family say now they would just like to, to lay Lisa along with her, you know, let the two of them be together in death, that they couldn't be together in life. And that's that's their wish. And, you know, I've covered so many disappeared cases, especially those cases they said linked to the very early days of the Troubles in the 70s. And it's the the absence of a 
proper Christian burial place somewhere where people can go on a birthday or an anniversary and lay flowers or say a prayer or, you know, it's that not knowing. And I, I do think that, you know, it adds to people's trauma and grief because to think of someone you loved, you know, in a shallow grave in some piece of wasteland, you know, it's it's not a... It, it's, it clearly adds to the trauma of the family. They're very distressed about it. And, and they have done an amazing job, I think, keeping Lisa in the headlines because we do have other missing people here and we do have other missing women but you know it's just down to the tenacious nature of the, of the Dorian family that they've managed to keep Lisa's case so high profile. Was there an arrest of the suspect at any point during the last um since 2005? There has been several arrests in relation to this and the, the, the chief suspect in this case has been arrested and questioned. The police officer who was sort of leading that investigation um, retired earlier this year and a new team have taken over it. I know that their family expect developments to happen later this year. The last time I was speaking to them, they weren't at liberty to say what those developments might be. They're still not able to say, but they're quite confident that this is the year when they'll maybe see some sort of movement and advancement. And also there have been the team, the Disappeared Commission, which was tasked to find those troubles victims, those killings that occurred before 1998, they have used new technology and new techniques that exist, have existed since then to find and return almost all of those disappeared bodies. Um, and they have been obviously advising the search teams as well. But the thing about it is, for those techniques to work, you at least need it narrowed down to an area. You know, if it's just miles and miles and miles of wasteland, you can't just randomly search. They need it narrowed down to at least quarter of a mile, half a mile. There is some water close close to it, not the sea, some some other water and there were searches there last last year. Um it's a sort of pond type thing, like a lake, and there were searches there. They didn't there was nothing found there. But I mean you know, there's they've also teamed up, I think that the Dorians is very important with other families who have suffered similar losses. We've a girl called Charlotte Murray, who was murdered, there has been a man convicted of her murder, but he's never revealed where her remains are. So one of the things that the Dorians have campaigned for, which you know I think is just so important and it should be legislation in every country, is what they're calling Charlotte's Law. So if you're convicted of murdering someone whose body you have concealed, your parole is not accepted until you give information to return the body of the person you murdered. If you want to be released, you tell the authorities where you placed the body. In this case, I think the concern of the people who were involved and you're trying to get in the mind of, of a killer here, is that they still think there may be something on Lisa's body that could be used to connect them to it, whether that is what they use to wrap her body in or whether that is what they use to conceal her body with, but that they feel that there may be some remaining DNA despite the passage of time, some forensic link that if her body was recovered, that they could then be linked because... There are only only these suspects, so the police wouldn't be randomly DNA testing this material for anyone and everyone. They'd be DNA testing for two very specific people. So I think that's probably one of the reasons. And the other reason, as I said, is they rely on each other for protection. Um, and so they were recently, I think the, the Dorians were heartened by the fact that there was a case, a murder case, a very tragic murder, murder case here of a girl who was stabbed to death in her own home and her house set on fire to try and destroy the evidence. And the killer in that case, there was only a circumstantial 
case against them, there was a, a very real chance, you know, the, of, of him not being convicted despite the brutal nature of the killing. And midway through that trial, a female witness came forward and said that she had heard the killer discussing with her former partner that he had murdered someone. She gave evidence, and her evidence arguably is one of the things that helped swing. Now, there was other evidence against this guy that helped swing that. And when I spoke to Joanne Dorian afterwards, she said, you know, that gave us hope. We thought, is there a person like that out there for us? Does she exist? Have these people through the passage of time, maybe through pillow talk or through, you know, guilty conscience, have they revealed um, information to someone? And is that person holding that information? And would it? what would it take for them to come forward and tell us that? Because their campaign is for the location of Lisa. It's not, you know, a criminal campaign. That's the police's job. And so more recently then, they've started gathering together a, a, a reward, which I think they hoped would try and encourage someone who was maybe linked to those killers to come forward and, and give them that information. And quite a significant reward. Um, the last time you were writing about it, it was up to 60,000. It is. I think it's it, it's currently around the mid-60,000s now. Um, and that's, you know, it's due to the fact that obviously they're, they're trying very hard to to um, encourage people to get forward. But mainly it's down to the fact that a, a guy, I don't know whether you've ever known him, I wasn't aware of the... the the guy at all, but £50,000. Yeah, I was going to ask you about him. Barry Druid Barlow. Barlow. So I have since looked him up and he had a, a very successful reality TV show himself and his partner were the first people who legally adopted through, had a child through surrogacy um, in the UK and they went on to have six children. They own a really successful business um, and they live in America and he had been following Lisa's case and just a very compassionate guy who obviously loves his own family. Um, and was really moved by the story, and he donated £50,000 to the, the Dorian's case so that they could offer that as a reward then for information on Lisa's whereabouts. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that really would offer hope for other families and reasons to keep talking about their loved ones and, to you know, for journalists like ourselves to continue to write about it. Sometimes small miracles like that happen, um, you know, and be it a reward coming in or somebody with the passage of time decides to... Um, to come forward with information. There was two things there I wanted to ask you about. The conviction without a body, very unusual, and I don't think we have had a similar situation down here. In actual fact, a very high-profile case in the west of Ireland. Um, there was a, a trial of an individual um, in, the, in, a, in a case where there was no body found and he was charged with murder and the case collapsed because, you know, Pretty much, I think the judge felt there wasn't enough evidence without the body. You don't have cause of death. You don't have definitive proof the person is dead. Um, but maybe in more modern times, this is something that will be looked upon slightly differently in the courts. I, I do think that that's really important. Um, you know, the, this is something too that the Dorians have, have joined with the, the family of Charlotte Murray. So Charlotte went missing. She was a woman who went missing in 2012. She was from Oma in County Tyrone and her former partner, a guy called Johnny Miller, was convicted of her murder. The family are saying his failure to tell them the location of her body should be taken into account at any future parole hearing. Um, after the, he was sentenced, Charlotte's family said, and you understand that he should never be released until he reveals the location of her body. I'm assuming that from his point of view, he feels he has some sort of chance to appeal or sometime in the future. But there will be a time when Johnny Miller will have to accept that he is in prison. He has been convicted of this crime and there is no longer any any justification for him 
to do this sort of cruel thing that he's done up until now. You know, it's it's, it's inhumanly cruel just to not tell them where, where Charlotte's body is. Um, he was sentenced to serve 16 years for the murder, which I don't think is long enough for um, long enough a tariff for for a killing like that. We know those sort of femicide killings. We have been covering them. I know you've been covering them, Nicola. I cover them. Um, and the, the fact is that they have increased in, in recent years and the, the crime and the deterrent for that should, should fit the crime. But, you know, the, the Charlotte's Law, there is a similar law in England where um, if you don't reveal the location of a body that you don't then get accepted or you don't get considered for parole. Um, they have quite a sort of complex... They've met with various politicians to discuss this and try and get support for it. Basically, what they're asking is, you know, that they're offered at a time of even charge that people are offered certain deals in relation to handing over this information um, and whether that be the fact that their tariff is reduced on conviction to a lower tariff for that or whether that be that they are not eligible for parole until such time as they do hand it over. You can see how in cases like that that people would be really keen because, I mean, the conviction with their body is extremely rare for a start, we know that. Mm. But, you know, in the Dorian's case, they feel that police are making progress in that case. They really do genuinely think that there's a chance that there will be charges brought at some time in the future. And if it comes that they're in the same position as Charlotte Murray and there's a charge without a body, you can see how they would really want that law in place before then because we're otherwise, where is the incentive for those people to hand over that information? Mm. Unless they, you know, see the light feel remorse all of a sudden or, or want to do some good, which they obviously don't. They, you know, they're, I suppose, without the body, it gives them a chance on appeal and that kind of thing. Um, Raymond O'Neill was the the murderer that you referred to in the previous case who he murdered his his partner and then set fire to the house. Actually, his, his partner, Jennifer, didn't no. meet Raymond O'Neill until the night of her murder. He was a, a friend of a friend, if you know. She was going out with a friend and the friend's partner was friends with O'Neill. And he, they came to pick her up from her house. Um, Jennifer Jordan was at home. Her sister was minding her children that night. She rarely got out because she was a single parent. So was all excited that she was getting out with her, her friends. Um, and Raymond O'Neill came in the car to pick her up along with a friend, another friend. And that was the only reason he knew where her house was. Um, Jennifer was intoxicated she was just drunk she was in her mate's house and she'd walked home she lived very close her trial during her trial we seen CCTV of Jennifer with her shoes in her hand I don't know how many times I've walked home at night with my shoes in my hand her shoes in her hand walking home um, you can see she's you know she's a few drinks on her she's a wee bit unsteady on her feet she goes home the lights go on the lights go off and then within you know, half an hour, you see this person with her coat over their head because they knew there was CCTV coming up, climbing over the gate, entering Jennifer's house. Um, they couldn't prove that there was a sexual motive, but clearly they believe there was a sexual motive to the, the crime. But she was stabbed three times and then he set fire to her house and the fire was with such ferocity that the roof came in on top of her in the house and her body was so badly damaged that it was... Oh, you know, it took a day for the post-mortem to even reveal. Her family thought she died in a house fire originally for them to be told that she'd actually been murdered. She'd been stabbed three times. The case was so graphic, the evidence given during the trial. You know, I was there the day the pathologists gave evidence and they got told about the post-mortem. The day the forensics officers talked about the state that her house was in when they entered it with the roof having, having come through. Her three small children lost everything that night. They didn't just lose their mother. They were literally in their pyjamas in their aunt's house and they hadn't 
so much as a toy or a school uniform or a pair of shoes. They lost everything because the house was completely destroyed. He had always denied. He, he fled to the south and he was arrested in Bundoran um, about a week later. He had already served. He was actually on the run. from. He had done a run from Castlebury Open Prison where he was serving a sentence for, I think it was for a robbery. So he had to serve the remainder of that and then he was arrested at the prison gates. He fought the extradition. So this case went on for years longer than it should have. Jennifer was murdered in 2015. It took them quite some time to even get Raymond O'Neill extradited. And then once he was extradited, he continually messed around through the courts to delay the case. Um, and when he arrived at court, he arrived every time for a hearing in a wheelchair, despite the fact he doesn't particularly doesn't need a wheelchair. But he claimed that he couldn't walk, that he had been poisoned by prison officers in prison and all sorts of other things. I think part of the reason for that was the CCTV that captured him in several places that night in the early hours of the morning. He continually lifted his coat. Those um, CCTV cameras are motion censored. So if you walk past a house that has CCTV, the light will go on and the camera will come on. So every time the light went on, he pulled the coat over his head. So they were trying to get an expert to look at his gait, to look at his walk. So he just refused to walk while he was in prison and decided he was going to be in a wheelchair. Fighting it all the way. You knew him. I knew Raymond O'Neill. I lived, where I'm from, West Belfast, he lived around the corner from me beside a play park. And when I was told that he was the the chief and only suspect in Jennifer's murder, I wasn't surprised at all. He was a very dysfunctional child and young man. He was one of those people that would have harmed animals and caused hurt to animals. He was constantly causing harm to cats, to dogs, to anything he could get his hands on. Um, he was a very cruel child and then, a, you know, a very sinister young man. He was one of those people. So, yeah, I wasn't surprised that it was him. I was delighted for the family when he was convicted because they have just been through absolute hell and Jennifer's poor children are just, you know, mm. they are being cared for very lovingly by her family who take care of them and look after them as best as they can. But it's not their mother, you know, and... and They've lost their mother. She was a single parent. She was raising them alone. Um, and the harm that that did that night. And also, you know, to Jennifer's mother and sister, who I'm so fond of. They're just such lovely, lovely women and have been, you know, I think so dignified throughout what has been a terrible experience. But, you know, those type of killings, the Dorns are searching for Lisa's body and haven't had it returned. With Jennifer's body, they couldn't have a, an open coffin I mean, her sister spoke to me about the fact that nobody, they were trying to explain to the children that their mother was gone, but there was nothing to show because her body was so badly damaged in the fire that, it, you know, the coffin had to be closed. They never seen her again. So she had met her that day in a shopping centre and took her, her, her kids and was like, you know, go on your night and enjoy yourself. I'd never seen her again. That was it. You know, that was the last time they seen her. And all the memories and the smells and everything that would have been in that house of their mother. All the family pictures, all the children's wee mementos from the mementos from the were babies, their wee baby shoes, everything, everything all gone. There was nothing. Mm. And they said even anything that you could have salvaged, the smell of smoke off it was so badly that they didn't want to take it because they thought it would upset the children if they smelled it. So it was all just dumped the whole thing. They had nothing. They got there was nothing salvaged from that house. Alison, do these cases get enough funding into them in the North or have they in the past? Do they get enough tension? I suppose the North has just been so engulfed and has been in the past by the troubles that, you know, all that 
paramilitary element that comes into everything. And like you were saying that there's I probably in all these cases, there is a, a rumor that it's paramilitary probably still to this day. But do they get the same attention and have they got or are a lot of these cases forgotten? You know, when I first started journalism 20 years ago, these cases got practically no attention. And, and I also remember going back and looking at archives from the 70s and 80s for stuff that I was researching. And you're looking through the paper and you're saying, you know, there was a bomb, there was a shooting. And then in the corner, you know, in a tiny little spot that maybe got 50 or 60 words at the bottom of a page, there would have been a story saying, police to investigate the death of a woman and such and such. And they were the domestic killings, as you call them, they were the femicide killings. They got zero attention. They were never followed up. Um, and, you know, we always say we lived in an armed patriarchy. This is a very patriarchy society, but it was also a very violent society with a lot of very violent men who existed within our society as well. They didn't get enough attention. I have, you know, dedicated my life's work to making sure they do get enough attention now because I do think that there's a spotlight needs needs shone on the fact, you know, that these killings are taking place, that these violent men exist and that there needs to be proper deterrence for them. Interestingly, our new domestic abuse legislation, which was passed just before the Assembly um, dissolved, before the, the elections, because we're having an Assembly, we're having Assembly elections, um, and whether or not we get a new government, I don't know. But the domestic abuse bill, which brought Northern Ireland into line with the rest of the UK and with the South, with coercive control laws, the stalking legislation, it created a new offence, which made domestic murder with aggravating circumstances an offence in itself. So those aggravating circumstances will be taken into consideration by the judge when sentencing someone if they're found guilty. There was a murder of a woman in a place called Whitehead, which is a beautiful sort of little seaside village, um, just a few weeks ago. And her ex-partner was charged in relation to that. And the day he was in court, I, you know, my ears pricked up when this charge was read out. And it says, with the aggravating charge of death by domestic violence. And that's the first time that charge had been used. So I will follow that case closely to see what the difference is in the sentence and tariff between that under the new legislation and what previously existed. And do you have any idea how many cold cases are out there and, you know, maybe were, you know, were, were sort of half forgotten throughout the Troubles? Those sort of, not only just were there cases of women being murdered that were not resolved or there was no convictions in it, there was cases where people were convicted and received incredibly low sentences because those kind of domestic murders they had would have had ridiculous defences, you know, how, you know, at, at one stage in the 80s, people were giving defences of how this woman was having affairs, you know, so therefore she deserved to be brutally murdered, you know. This woman was, you know, mentally tormenting this man by leaving him and refusing, you know, to speak to him when he was chatting. They were seen as aggravating circumstances. So there was cases like that. But right now, um, we have four missing women, four women whose bodies have not been recovered. So there's... Lisa Dorian, as we have discussed, there's Charlotte Murray, as we have discussed, there's Arlene Arkinson, a young girl who went, yeah, you've covered that case, I'm sure, you know, she went to a dance, never was found, her body's never been recovered, and more recently, there is um, a young girl called Sorsha Smith, whose body has never been recovered, and she was from West Belfast, but they believe her body may be in the south, possibly in a mouth. Um, and those four women... You know, I think when you see the pictures all alongside each other, it's very stark to see that those very young, pretty, lovely 
beautiful women full of life with so much potential, you know, ahead of mm. them. And not just mm. were they murdered, but they were also murdered and given, you know, the indignity of their bodies being secretly buried somewhere. Um, back in about probably 2005 or 2008, maybe from memory, um, in Ireland down here, there was a setup of a, a, a serious crime review team called the Cold Case Team. And at the time it launched, there was 200 unsolved murders. A lot of them were, you know, actually they were mixed, to be honest with you. They weren't just women. They were women and men. But um, they set about going through those cases and probably prioritising the ones that maybe were nearly solved but weren't. They have had some success um, and the unit is still operating and covering some very high profile cases. I think the the modus operandi of it is it goes back through all the old files and the detectives will take notes of areas maybe that could be revisited, witnesses that could be, you know, questioned again. And, you know, obviously any developments in DNA and forensics and science, they're always at the fore that if they can be used, if there's any if there's any DNA evidence in the case of um, of baby uh, of baby John in, in Kerry, the, the Kerry baby's case, that DNA is hopefully something that may certainly solve his identity and maybe then lead police to the killer. But. Is there any talk of that or is there any suggestion of, of that coming to the fore? There's been so much money pumped into um, investigating crimes around the Troubles, but is, is the same political will there for, for these other cases? No, we do have the Legacy Investigations Branch, which investigates unsolved Troubles killings. Not, may I say, with any great degree of success, because they don't. But no, I mean, in terms of, of that, I don't think that there is enough work done to look back. I, I do know that since Raymond O'Neill's conviction that they're looking at maybe unsolved sexual crimes and his DNA to try and see if they can maybe solve them that way. Um, but I do think, you know, in terms of those unsolved women cases, the thing is, in most of those cases, when there's been a woman murdered, they know who killed them because it'll it'll be someone known to them. Mm. It'll be someone close to them. Um, it'll be someone who were their last seen with, you know, and, you know, there's a, there's a problem in ter- terms of, like, one of the, the recent cases, I suppose, that got a, a lot of attention due to a BBC documentary was the Inga Maria Hauser case, you know, a young German backpacker who arrived on a, a, a boat. She was travelling around Europe, taking a gap year, had been bouncing around Europe, having the time of her life, got on a boat arrived in Larne with the intentions of getting a train to Dublin for the next leg of her adventure. She was to meet a friend there. I made a friend in Wales after she finished in, in Dublin. She never arrived. This is the days long before mobile phones and communication that way. And her body was later found in a really remote forest. The killer in that case, and there was DNA, is there's a suspect in that case as well. They believe what happened was Inga went to come off the boat and actually ended up getting in a, a lorry, a haulage. There's these boats are used to transport the haulage workers. Got asked for a lift and ended up going to a place that she didn't know in a very remote and desolate place where she was sexually assaulted and murdered. Again, that has never been solved. And I do think that the reason it wasn't solved at the time was because the detectives tasked with the troubles that were raging at the time. There was just so little effort in a lot of times we talk about collusion in this part of the world and people colluding with murders and murders being informers and we've seen evidence of that with countless police ombudsman reports but there was also a degree 
of either weariness or just being hardened to the fact that so many people were being murdered and in some cases completely utter incompetence as well. And I do think that she suffered from the sort of misogynist nature of society at that time because there was, well, what is, you know, a teenage girl doing travelling on her own anyway? And, I mean, we talk about rumours about people. There's people spreading rumours that she, at the time, and she was some sort of sex worker and this was some sort of, and this was just a young, innocent college student, you know, doing what hundreds of kids do every summer and travelling around Europe trying to have a, a bit of an adventure. She wasn't from a family with any means. Her family were incredibly poor. I often wonder if Inga had been from a very well-to-do family, would there be more pressure from the German government on um, the, the, PA, the the RUC, as they were at the time, and on the government in Northern Ireland at the time, to make sure that her murder was properly investigated. But when you take that mix of a very young teenage girl, a family with no means or no wealth, who spoke so little English, um, at one stage, it, they, it was 10 years in gaps before they between the letters they received from the PSNI, Inger was cremated here, you know, here in Northern Ireland and her ashes sent back in an envelope in the post to her family. That was how they received her body back. Um, you know, all of that I don't think would have happened had it been someone who was of better standing, I suppose, if you talk about it. You take a very poor, very working class young girl. It was almost as if her, her murder didn't matter. And that was one of the things about Inga's case that, that annoyed me so much. I do think that there would have been a tendency to forget a lot of these killings had it not been for the fact, and as a journalist, I'm always in admiration of people's families who just refuse to let it go, and they will keep knocking doors, they will keep banging on doors until someone listens to them. And if, you know, it's those families who don't have that strong voice speaking up for them that are the cases that are often forgotten. But, you know, I have faith in, in Lisa Dorian's family that they are not that kind of family. They will not give up, you know, until they get answers. A detective once told me that, um, you know, when it comes to relaunching these cold cases and having a new impetus put into them and maybe a new team put on them, it's always those who shout loudest who will be heard. And, and that is so true. Um, yeah, sometimes the victims, when they don't have that functioning family behind them, it is really sad the way they're just completely forgotten. And, you know, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. Some families just aren't able to to do it and they, they they maybe were broken before something like this happens and they're even worse. Do you think that narrative, that awful sort of narrative you've described there about Inga Maria Hauser, the idea that her remains, her ashes were sent back in an envelope and that she didn't matter? Do you think, and and really, I suppose at the heart of it, the, the idea that she was a woman who was asking for something, do you think that narrative is changing now in society? It wouldn't if we didn't keep on speaking up to change it. You would be exactly the same, and I think it would live in exactly the same society that treated women exactly the same if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, that women's voices now insist on being heard. And if we didn't change the narrative, and as a journalist, I think we play a really important role in that because look at the, the headlines of the past and headlines that still exist sometimes. Yeah. You know, I give a, you know, went to give a, a talk about this one time and I literally just Googled um, and the first four or five headlines that come up was, you know, um, husband flew into jealous rage over toy boy boyfriend and things like this. And this is like a man who'd killed his wife with an axe. And you're reading those and thinking, well, journalists play a role in that too because that sort of victim shaming or justifying those very violent murders by using those kind of headlines, you know, does a disservice to the victim and does a disservice to us as journalists. That's not telling the story properly. So, um, 
more recently, and I suppose maybe I wasn't as mindful as this in, in my younger days, but more recently now, when I'm writing those stories, I'm always careful to make sure that the victim's name goes in the first line of the story. Because, you know, I have read stories in the past where the killer's name, and you have to read down and search before you actually find the name of the woman who's been killed. It's just, you know, seven paragraphs down. I always make sure, you know, and, and show them and who they were because that humanising, I think, of victims rather than shaming of victims. And that's probably just because in the past, if you go back 20 or 30 years, the kind of journalism we do, the kind of crime journalism, it was a man's job. It was a male-dominated industry. So those headlines were written from the male perspective. Um, and that's the thing I think that's changed. And we, we are much more mindful. And when I started working for the Belfast Telegraph, one of the first things I did my first week was show all the women who had been murdered since the start of the pandemic. And they, the, the Belfast Telegraph put all of their pictures in the front page and did that front page. And I was so so proud that I'd came to work for a newspaper that allowed me the space and time to work on that and, and actually say, this is who these women were, you know, and this is what age they were, this women, and they were... They were a person, they were loved, they were sister, they were daughter, they were mother. Um, and I, I do think that, you know, that kind of journalism can make a difference and it can change society's attitudes. But you have to keep chipping away at it, you know. It's not something that's just going to happen by itself. Yeah, you know, I cringe when I look back on headlines of the past, I have to say, or when you go back through the archives of, in particular, the tabloid newspapers, which both of us have worked on, while they do great work when it comes to crime and investigations. Certainly they have evolved into a tamer being and you do have more of a voice and maybe it's just as we get older and, you know, a little bit more thoughtful about what we do as well. But you're kind of a little bit more in tune with the the overall package of a story as opposed to just doing it. I mean, when I think back as well, some of the pictures that were used around stories um, involving the sex industry, prostitution and all those sort of stock pictures were awful. And it was actually the sex industry who were coming to us and saying, please stop using that sort of stuff. And it was people working with women who were on the streets and that. And it's, please stop using that imagery. You know, it isn't sexy prostitution street prostitution is not but we do try and we are trying to evolve and get better all the time I suppose and I hope so you know it's it's always a learning curve for me and sometimes I have messed up and you know people have said to me I'm really unhappy with the way you covered that and I note it and I make note of it and I make sure I don't do it again you know and it's it's, mm. it's a learning we do we learn as we go along we evolve I'm sure I you know as you said I'm cringe if I look back at some of the things I did in the past but now you know I'm very mindful of the fact that those headlines can cause so much hurt to your family long after the story is forgotten about and you've moved on the news agenda's moved on it hasn't moved on for them they're still there living that you know that's their real lived experience and it's absolutely gutting when you do meet somebody who you've in some way hurt or affected by something you didn't even realize you were at the time doing or you just didn't realize the enormity of the impact of that be it the headline or the picture or your also the power of the other way of that you know the power of when people have came and said thank you so much that, you know, you showed her for who she was because basically up until she was just a statistics. And, and you know, I do think that there can be power in that. There can be power in, and sometimes you think, is this an intrusion to this person's grief? But then they would say, I would like you to explain that this is what she was into. This is what she loved. This is what she loved to do. This is what she wanted to do in the future. This was her plans. These were the things that she wanted because then they see that in black and white and writing. And, you know, it's, it's almost like a memorial to someone that they loved and they go, well, now you see who it was. And it wasn't just, you know, this woman walking home at night, you know, who was murdered. Mm-hmm. Here, this is who she was and this is who she, you know, she is to the people who loved her. And finally, I just want to ask you something because I've always found this curious and I have no proper explanation of it. But 
some cases, some murder victims, shall we say, and, and mainly female murder victims, I think, in, in, in this realm, but they sort of have this, some victims just connect to such an extent with the public and other victims who may have died in exactly the same way, whose life was as valued, struggle to get media coverage. The families who are struggling, some families just, you know, it's just never ending. They never have to to push it. It's just, it's almost as if, trying not to sound crude, but it's almost as if some victims have a kind of an X factor or something when it comes to I think there's a there's a hierarchy of victims, and and I do, and it, sometimes this makes me furious. And it's not just in terms of the media coverage; it's in terms of the public reaction. So you have someone who, two women who are murdered, but one is someone who is considered to be, you know, of the right kind of family, of the right standing, have done the right job. There'd be, you know pictures of them in, you know, graduating in their graduate uniform, we pictured this person. So there's a sort of assumption this person is an innocent, innocent person. And all victims of that kind of crime, if you're murdered, you're a victim of murder regardless. Mm-hmm. And they deserve all of the outflowing of sympathy and public sympathy that they get. But then if you take a picture of a young woman murdered in a very similar circumstance and she is a single parent, and the pictures of her that you can, you know, the only pictures that exist on her Facebook are pictures of her out having a bit of crack with her mates or out for the night, and therefore there's an assumption that she was this type of person, but that victim was this type of person. So we mm-hmm. feel really sorry for that. But what was she doing at the time she was killed? What was that person doing? You know, so I think there's, there's a hierarchy of victims. I have discussed this with other female journalists as mm-hmm. well. And what we can do in order to try and sort of break that down, because that is all part of those, you know, husband snapped after a fervor playboy lover. That's all part of that sort of victim shame and that some people are less worthy of our sympathy than others. Um, and that's something that I do think that falls to the media, but also falls to the public and politicians, because you'll see statements of sympathy to families that they think are worthy of it. But, you know, Sometimes if, you know, a woman's killed or she's murdered or she's at a party or something like that, I'm looking at my emails and I'm waiting on the politicians coming out with the sympathetic mm-hmm. statements and they're very slow at coming out with them, you know, because they're waiting to find out who she was or what she was or what the circumstance before they decide whether they feel sorry or not. You know, and that's that's one of the things that has sustained this sort of uneven, unequal, patriarchal place, you know, that we live in is that attitude towards certain women that they are less worthy as a victim. There's a very interesting study for somebody and all that. And definitely I'm going to stay more aware of that because I think you're absolutely right. You see some people getting almost state funerals and others, um, even the coverage of, of, of um, you know, when they're laid to rest isn't even there in the, in the, in the public agenda. But um, a lot of work done and a lot more to do. So thank you very much, Alison Morris. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.